The phenomena of nature, especially those that fall under the inspection of the astronomer, are to be viewed not only with the usual attention to facts as they occur, but with the eye of reason and experience. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh yeah, baby. La 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 la. Yeah, do you know whose birthday it is today, Jamie? Well, it's only William Herschel, German slash English astronomer and composer. Yeah, I never knew he was a composer. He liked to do a little diddle. Totally loved a little loved a little ditty. Um seventeen thirty-eight. Yeah. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. And the lucky man discovered Uranus. <laughs> exactly. It wasn't called, it was actually called Herschel's Planet. Well, actually, it was originally called Georgie or something like that after the king, but the French the right. French didn't like that. French didn't like their onions. Oh. So eventually it oh. became Uranus. Well, the French do like onions, especially in soup. If you want to see a telescope that's very similar to the one he discovered um, mm. uh, Uranus with, uh, go to the Mars exhibition at uh, the Design Museum because it's... Um, it's there. It's it's seven foot refractor. Oh, if anyone loved that exhibition, it was Matthew. Russell. I did. I did big time. Um, there's also another astronomer born today. Go on. And that was in 1849, but a hundred and odd years later, uh, was a Mary E. Bird who uh, was most notable because she was a very good educator. She was a sort of pioneer of mixed gender classes and uh, she mm. she used to take photographs of comets to determine their positions. And uh, in a very modern move, she left her post as she was flying high uh, because the college was taking donations from big industrialists. Oh, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, so that's like it's oh. not a new thing. It's not a new thing. It's a it's as old as the hills. Well, well done, Mary. We uh, tip our caps to you. Excellent. Uh, Matt, I've got I've got a death. Yeah, go on but, then. D- but don't worry because this was in 1630, so it was mm-hmm. a while ago. Yeah, um, yeah it's yeah. our mate Johannes Kepler. Oh, Kepler's yes. old Kepler's. Isn't that funny that Kepler died on William Herschel's birthday? A hundred no. years, almost exactly a hundred years before. It it's was. like Herschel was a reincarnation of Kepler. and Do you and, and, and reincarnation takes exactly 108 years. Well, that's the only logical explanation I can well, come up with, Jamie. That's all it can be. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I've, got, I've got another death for you, Jamie. Oh, go on then. Uh, this is actually the first American space mission fatality. You didn't get that. So this was Michael James Adams, Mike Adams, uh, in on November the 15th, 1967. And it, I suppose this could have been Neil Armstrong. Uh, but, he, yeah, he was flying his X-15, got it to an altitude of 50 miles, which uh, qualifies him as being an astronaut, according to the US definition of the boundary of space. Nice. And um, But moments after he got to 50 miles high, uh, his plane fell apart and uh, was destroyed, uh, which also obviously killed poor old Mike Adams, making him yeah. the first space fatality. That's not good, is it? 
No, gross. Oof. Ouch. Well, on to lighter news. Yeah, yeah. 15th, if I said to you 15th of November 2008, what would you say to me? I would say that was the flight of uh, Space Shuttle STS-126. You are an encyclopedia, Mr. Russell. <laughs> Eric Bowe's first flight into space. Yeah, Eric Bowe, of course. We, we, we mentioned earlier on this year, uh, right at the beginning of the year, he was the f- he's one of the very first astronauts that's had to sort of give up um, because of medical reasons and was replaced by Michael Fink because he was going to be the person that may have Aye. become may have become the sort of uh, well he was going to become one of the astronauts that w- went up on the Boeing CST100 Starliner in the yes. first com- so would have been the first person to go up in a commercial uh human spaceflight genius to the international space station so yeah oh good time and uh, how many people uh, how many people have been to space before him Matt do you know uh, well, he would have been the 487th uh, person in space, is my count there, Jamie. And to win a prize, Matt, how many people so far to this day have been to space? I am going to go as... I'm Don't gonna... Google, I'll be able to hear your fingers if you Google. Uh, let me just think, Jamie. I can I... hear you typing! <laughs> I, I can think... hear no, it! Shut it! I think it's 565. Oh, uh, Okay. And they should just fling my ass to Saturn. Just send me out there. Right now? Yeah, I'll get shit done. <laughs> what are you going to do out at Saturn? <laughs> I'm going to write stories and, and music. And I'll be, like the, I'll be like the space hack. I'll be like the journalist reporting my daily sightings. I'll be like, nearly got hit by another car-sized chunk of ice. Over to you, Matt. Back on, back on Earth. A week, it could be weekly. You could, you could have it as part of the interplanetary podcast still. Well, maybe I will. Next week, I will report from Saturn. Well, let's, let's move on from what happened in the past. And let's, let's, and let's say on. what happened this week. OMG, this was the week that we saw a transit of Mercury for the first time. Oh. For the first time since the early tour bus that featured in the film Bohemian Rhapsody. Absolutely. Wasn't it stunning? I obviously didn't see it with the naked eye. I was actually I didn't see it with the naked eye, I have to say. I saw it afterwards on a on a YouTube video. Yeah. Um but it was beautiful. Little Mercury there, swanning past yeah, the sun. It's always it is a little you can't beat a transit really, can you? It's great. And everyone goes, God, the sun is big, isn't it? And then we say back to them, Matt, actually it's quite an average star. <laughs> yeah. And everyone goes, oh, shut up, geek. Shunned. Cold and alone as normal. What about Ult- Ultima Thule, Matt? The old Ultima Thule. Yeah, well, it's... Yeah. yeah. Well, that little strange Kuiper Belt object that looked like a snowman, remember? Remember that it's... Remember we know it well, yeah. Which turned out to be more like yeah. a snowman that had been run over by a steamroller. Oh, yes, that's right. It's been renamed. And do you know Here what it's go. been... Re- do you know what it's been renamed to? It sounds very much like a character from... Um, Warhammer. I'll let you say it. <laughs> Arrokoth. It's so heavy metal, isn't it? Arrokoth. I, Arrokoth, am here to defeat your puny planet. Or to give it its full name, 486958 Arrokoth. Rolls off the tongue. So you don't confuse it with the other Arrokoths. I know, God. 
That's so true. Oh, um, so, Christ. Yeah, so Alan Stern, the great Alan Stern, principal investigator for New mm. Horizons, has uh, said, uh, the name Arakarth reflects the inspiration of looking to the skies and wondering about the stars and worlds beyond our own. That desire to learn is the heart of the New Horizons mission, and we're honoured to join the Powhatan community of people of Maryland in this celebration of discovery. Wow, what a speech. Uh, the Powhatan people. Yes, do you know much about the Powhatan people? I have to say I don't, but I'll be Googling it after the show. Yes, the Powhatan people. So, yeah, they had to um, get the permission of the elders of the Pamunkey Native American tribe who are part of, I, I presume, the the this Powhatan people. Okay. Yes, who are a very important part of that area where Columbia, wow. where Columbia is. And Big shout Laurie, out to the Powhatans. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well, Laurie Glaze, director of NASA's Planetary Science Division, the genius, uh, said, this signifies the strength and endurance of the indigenous Algonquian people and that their heritage continues to be a guiding light for all those who search for meaning and understanding of the origins of the universe and the celestial connection of humanity. Was that Maggie Thatcher there, or or, or was that Laurie? That was Laurie. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so what, what, what do you think about that? I, th- I think that the Ultima Thule uh, name got jettisoned because of that perceived Nazi connection. Remember that little story? Yeah, I do remember. Maybe it's better that it's Arakoth. Oh, well, I just just don't know. I sometimes think you need to steal words back, don't you? Exactly. We're claiming it. Mm, Claim it back. But, I, yeah, Ultima Thule. Ultima and Thule make part of Arakoth. That's what I like to think of. Mm, This is it. There we go. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go with that. Now, Um, Matt, did you see by any chance... SpaceX get back on track to human launch. I said, well, I'm not. Is there any videos of that? I'm not sure. I, I mean, I saw the news, but I don't. I'll I don't, tell I you, I saw I, some photos. I didn't see the video yet, but wow. Wow. Yes. So, yeah, th- th- this was the static fire test that went disastrously wrong earlier in April this year when, um, when basically the crew capsule that had been up to the space station earlier in the year was destroyed in the same test. That is right. Not good. No, and that had something to do with the helium pressurization system where where a slug of material sort of landed on a bit of titanium and the extreme conditions meant that the titanium exploded. Yes. Weird weird reactions at very high pressures. So they've they've simplified the design and uh, they've done this static this static fire test, which was two burns of duration of one second each for each of the 16 Draco thrusters. And the Draco thrusters are the on-orbit maneuvering and attitude control thrusters. And then a full duration firing of approximately nine seconds of the Crew Dragon's eight Super Draco engines, which are the launch abort thrusters. So, So Harry Potter, isn't it? Yeah. So as soon as they shut down... You can then get the two Draco thrusters that fire and the Super Draco flaps close 
And that's the sequence that, that's required to reorient the spacecraft when it's in flight. So the full sequence then just over a minute, a minute, 10 seconds. Minutes and 10 seconds, yeah. There, there go. you go. And that, so that's hopefully what we see because now they're back on track. Uh, once NASA and SpaceX have gone through all the data, hopefully we'll see the in-flight abort test soon, which we would have had months ago had had they not had that terrible explosion. So that so they're kind of getting back on track now. So we're back to roughly where we were in April. So T- I guess talking that's... of talking Matt of getting back on track. Uh, well, it seems that the Space Force may not happen after all. Are you upset? Um, I'm not. I, I don't know. I don't. I'm not. I don't know enough about military kind of the complexities of military management to really have too much to say about whether Space Force is a good or a bad idea. Uh, so, Matt, Republican Adam Smith, uh, the Democrat from uh, Washington, we believe, has expressed doubts uh, about the final version of the National Defence Authorization Act, uh, that it would include language authorising uh, authorizing a Space Force. So, there we go. Might not happen. But get this for super exciting news. Go on. Uh, yeah, uh, India looked like they're going to have another go at uh, their moonshot that failed. Get in. Yeah, so they so the uh, ISRO, the Indian Space Agency, are uh, insiders are claiming that they're going to have another go at it, probably in November 2020. So Matt, I'm I'm going time. to Mumbai on the 10th of December for four days. Do you think I'm anywhere near any space stuff? Um, well, let's look it up because let's, we lo- let's look it up. If anyone <clears throat> lives in India, I'm going to Mumbai for four days. Am I near any spacey stuff? You really you shouldn't miss out if you are. You not you don't get to go to India every day of the week. Well, you don't. I am working um, out there very Tough. very hard, Tough. Matt, as you know. But uh, there's always time for space stuff. The big rival to India, China successfully tested a Mars lander this week um, in front of the world's press that they invited down. And a press release, their press release said, uh, this event is the first public appearance of China's Mars exploration mission. Also an important measure for China to pragmatically carry out space international exchanges and cooperation. Well, good work, China. Nice. Yeah, so that that's going to be joining all these other missions that are flying out to Mars next year. We got 2020 Mars Ageddon because, of course, that, that really uh, is launch window is opening. Well, talking of Mars, Matt, the methane mystery gets deeper. Certainly does. ESA's Mars orbiters did not see the latest Curiosity methane burst. I mean, come on. I oh, know. Well, this is this open is str- your eyes, please. Well, this is strange, isn't it? So Curiosity on on the 19th of June measured the highest ever methane burst, which was I, 21 yeah. ppbv, which means for every billion molecules, 21 were methane. I mean, how ace is that for a start off of how sensitive that equipment is? Imagine being able to measure that. Yeah, on Earth it would be one thousand eight hundred parts per billion. So yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, it measured a really really significant burst of methane. However, Mars Express that had travelled over that area the day before and five hours later did not sniff any methane in the air, and neither 
did the ESA Roscosmos TGO, or the Trace Gas Orbiter, which is the most sensitive detector, obviously, because it's the Trace Gas Orbiter, uh, didn't detect any methane either when it flew over that area a few days before. So Listen, Matt, we don't want to get too excited, but should we keep an eye on this one? Because you know what it could mean. It really could. It really could. There's a kind of bubbling excitement about this, I think. I think, obviously, scientists being super cautious aren't getting their hopes up. But I mean, Matt, we don't want to get too graphic, but could it be an alien farting? It, it genuinely could be aliens farting. That's, that's essentially I mean, exact, exactly how much, what it could be. Uh, how much PPBV is in your, is in your wind? Right now? <laughs> I'm just I, curious, I, Matt. What's well, the I, I don't what's know. The volume? Did you, funnily enough, Jamie, I, I actually don't keep any form of sensitive uh, equipment that that's able. You mean to measure you don't have a home. you don't have a TGO for your bottom? <laughs> I have no TGO pants. Oh, how weird! We'll have to sort that out. There's anyone well, at ESA listening? Here's an experiment <laughs> for you in Ilfracoon. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, I, uh, I, I. Before we get on to our interview, Jamie. Yes. Uh, this is this week's uh, Discord submission from Lorfos. Oh, lovely lot. Lovely lot. Lovely lot. So this is that. This is my little pick of all the little things that have been coming in this week. And that Cheers, is Lorfos. A paper on the old archive. Uh, that was released back in July, but that I noticed it's been edited to version two this week. And that is The Great Escape, discovery discovery of a nearby 1,700 kilometres a second star ejected from the Milky Way by Sagittarius A-star. Ooh. Could we put The Great Escape theme tune in about now? Yeah, I think so. Don't see why not. So that's nice. Sergei E. Koposov et al. Loads of people involved in this one. But apparently this is really quite odd. The chances of this happening and seeing one so close to Earth. And when I say so close to Earth, it's 30,000 light years or about nine kiloparsecs uh, from the sun. Yeah, it would take a while. Take a while to get there. But this is, I mean, that's close compared to where it's come from. Exactly. This is the comparison. Yeah, so this star is the fastest main-sequence hypervelocity star, or HVS, ever seen. And it's called S5HVS1, and it's 2.3 times the mass of the sun. Right. And, and it seems to be travelling at 1,700 kilometres a second. That's about 4 million miles an hour. That's quick. I mean, the sun is travelling... That is quick. The sun is travelling around the galactic centre at about half a million miles an hour. That's that's also pretty yeah. quick, right? But Matt, but uh, if we're going that fast, how come we don't feel it standing here on Earth? How come I'm not flung off? Because everything we talk about on the podcast is a load of rubbish made up by NASA. Because the, <laughs> because because the Earth is flat, Jamie. Everyone yeah, knows that. But exactly. But, let's, but I just like to keep up the pretense because it's so much more exciting. Definitely. Yeah, so uh, yeah, it it if you run this uh, it, because Gaia has been tracking this star's movement, the Great Gaia mm. uh, uh, Space Telescope launched by ESA. Um, it's uh, if you go backwards, the path takes it directly back to Sagittarius A. So 
That implies unambiguously back to the galactic centre. So it looks like, yes, that Sagittarius A-star, the black hole, the supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy, kicked it out. So that's pretty exciting. It's that, so as it, it's likely that S5... But Matt, how could a black hole kick anything out? Because as it... Uh, well, S5HSV1 is probably or was probably part of a binary star system so as this binary star system sort of got a little bit too close to the black hole as it's orbiting around it's all those that gravitational dance gets so complicated that one of the stars gets held by the black hole while the other one is thrown out at extremely high speeds. And this would have happened in the early solar system with planets. There was probably a couple of planets that were chucked out of the solar system just because of the way that orbits work. It's got there's there's a couple of little orbit games that you can play on Android and 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 your on your phone, on your iPhone and things like that. Is there? Okay. Uh, where you where you just stick little bits of you know you stick little particles in orbit around other particles and it's really fascinating how as soon as you add two or three things in there just how chaotic it gets really quickly so and yes. you get things just thrown out just thrown out at super high velocity which is what's happening to this thing the uh, escape velocity of the Milky Way is about five hundred kilometers a second so as Douglas Burbert from the University of Oxford who's a co-author, said, the velocity of the discovered star is so high that it will inevitably leave the galaxy and never return. So it, it, so it essentially has been flung out, not just out of its, out of its orbit around the black hole, but it's been flung out of the galaxy. It's, it's going fast. But the, but the strange thing is that it's quite near where we are so that we can actually observe it. And it, and it gives quite a bit of information as well. I think it gives uh, quite a bit of information about the um, kinematics of the galaxy and the geometry. Oh, that's a great yeah. word, Matt. What, what word does that what, – say that again? The kinematics. The kind and of, what does that mean? Well, all, all, the, all the sort of various velocities and uh, of all the different objects – you know the movement of the galaxy and the geometry of the galaxy. Uh, the, it, this, this, the studying this star will give some constraints to various. Well, I learned, I learned a new word today. There we go. Mm. Mm. I, I, I hope I've said it right. I mean, it obviously comes from kinetic energy, so kinematics of the galaxy. I tell you what, Matt. If you haven't said it right on this podcast with our reputation, I'll be furious. Mm. I will be. I tell you what. I might even tip a table. So do you know when this star would have had its close approach to, to Sagittarius A star? Ten and a half trillion years ago. Oh, come on, you know that's not right because that's before the start of the universe. I'm just oh, being silly, man. I'm just being silly. I don't know is the answer. Tell me, though, please. About 4.8 million years ago. So just as our distant ancestors, the apes, were trying to walk upright. That's when mm. that happened. And it's been travelling at this ridiculous speed ever since, away from the away from the galactic centre on its journey to be expelled from the Milky Way. And of course it's oh, it's probably really? going it's probably going fast enough where if you were and this is the question, imagine if you were in that solar system. If you were in that solar system, I wonder if uh, you'd even notice it. So if you're on a planet orbiting that star, would you have noticed your 
velocity as you got flung out of the galaxy or 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 would you only perceive your relative velocity to your you know to your own planet and just you just wouldn't even feel it oh uh, god that is nuts isn't it i can mm. see myself going down a youtube black hole soon yeah with all and, this. and the other thing i'm wondering about if, if it was part of a binary system are we able to find the partner star that's been left in orbit around Sagittarius A. So presumably with spectroscopy, you can find out the material that the star that's traveling is how it's what it's made from. It's you yes. know, its composition. And then try and find one of a similar composition that's been left behind and, and say, oh my God, I mean, how ace would that be if you could say, and that is that was its companion star right there. Oh God, that would be that would be unbelievable, wouldn't it? It would be absolutely cool. So that that's a very, very cool little story. And and this has all happened this week, Jamie, all the things that we've been talking about. I mean, jeez, we, we thought we'd had a busy week. Yeah, and we, we haven't even talked about SpaceX launching way more, loads more Starlinks and, and, and that it was the fourth time the same booster had landed and all those things. We haven't even talked I mean, about that, Jamie. We haven't got time. Listeners, when you get stressed, when you've had a busy week or a busy day, sit yourself down, make a cup of tea, and just remember how busy space has been compared to you. Yeah, so it's not all bad. <laughs> Do you think people will take inspiration from that, Matt? I, I don't see why not. I don't see why not. I should not, be Jamie. a counsellor, really, shouldn't I? I think you should. In, Dr. It, Franklin. I think in some ways... We are counsellors. I like to think that people maybe use the uh, interplanetary podcast as one of those. What's it called when you sort of whisper on YouTube? AMSR. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I think we could do that, yeah. Uh, it's like an AMSR podcast. Space. Matt, have, have you ever, uh, when, you've, when you've ordered anything online, have you ever put doctor as your um, first initial? Absolutely. Just to make yourself feel no, good? No, because... It, it's it's a horrible thing to pretend to be a doctor when you're not. Why? <laughs> Just is. It means that I can examine you. Oh my god, Jamie, <laughs> Jamie. Oh Christ, sorry I, everyone. I did a, I did an interview a while back with a chap oh, yeah. called Andrew Raider. Oh yeah, yeah yeah. He's a mission manager at SpaceX. Oh my god. Yeah, now and he is a doctor in aerospace engineering from well, MIT, from MIT, no less. Yeah, he's not someone silly like me. He's a proper doctor. This is yeah. ace. Yeah, and uh, yes, and he won in he won Discovery Channel's competitive television series Canada's Greatest Know It All. Oh my god! So I tell you what, that is quite the title. Yeah, yeah, he's got a weekly podcast just like us. And uh, he's got a new book out this week. What's the book called? And the book is called Beyond the Known. That is a stocking filler, if ever I heard one. And yeah, it, it's uh, well, we're just about to talk about it, so I'm not going to I'm not going to spoil the whole interview for you. So yes, it's he's done a few kids' books, but and this is his first adult book. But don't get excited, Jamie. I don't mean adult book in that way. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, so, yes, um, uh, do you want to hear my interview? Let's roll it. Let's roll it, Ecoute. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! 
Hello, Andrew. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you very much. Give us a little bit of uh, an outline of what you do, an outline of what the book is all about. All right. I'm an aerospace engineer. I work at SpaceX, and I'm a children's author and now author of this new book, Beyond the Known, How Exploration Created the Modern World. I actually studied long-duration human spaceflight at MIT, so that's sort of my background, and I'm also a structural engineer. So I do, um, yeah, I did a master's in aerospace structures, looking at different aircraft and spacecraft design. Got to talk a little bit about aircraft structures, structural mechanics in the book, which is kind of fun. I have a chapter on aviation because the book is sort of a trajectory. It's a trajectory from the beginnings of humanity, mm -hmm. where we all started in Africa, and we spread out throughout the world. And there were really two waves of human expansion throughout the world. Because when Europeans went out to explore the world, they found that everywhere there were already people, except for Antarctica and a few islands out at sea. But everywhere else in the world, there were already people. So that was sort of the first human wave of expansion. The book, and then the first chapter is really about that first human wave of expansion going out. The first and second actually are about that, uh, going out to kind of prehistory, going out to settle the entire world. And then the rest of the book is about how we rediscovered the world. So kind of the reunification of humanity through our technology. And I think there's sort of two main ideas in the book. One is that exploration has been one of the main driving forces of technological development throughout history. It's kind of like an arms race between technological development, which allows exploration mm. and then exploration drives technical technological development because it creates the incentives mm. for us to de develop better technology. Kind of like if you think about North America versus Europe, before Europeans started going to North America, there was no reason for them to build fancy sailing ships and transcontinental ocean liners and airliners and stuff like that. It's only the knowledge of the continents and the trade between the continents that drove the incentives to develop those technologies because we don't develop technologies for no reason in mm. a vacuum. It's all about context. One of my favorite uh, chapters of another book, uh, a, a book, I don't know if you've read it, uh, a book called Sapiens by, I can't remember his name now, but one of the sort of like pressing things he has in that book, and I don't know whether you'll agree with this, is that technology is one of the only ways we can expand economically as well. So how does that how does that play into exploration and particularly going into space? I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a great book, uh, Sapiens. I've read all his books actually. Yuval Noah Harari. And that, I think this book is sort of similar in a way. The the second main idea that I was going to talk about is is actually really related to that because his idea is that language is one of the main differentiators in ideas, really, kind of imagination, the ability to kind of make up myths. Uh, through language, mm. is one of the, the main things that distinguishes humans from other animals. Another distinguishing feature is technology. So something that's unusual about humans is they're everywhere in the world, <laughs> right? And and they're only here, they're, we're not native to the entire planet. We're only native to a small corner of Africa. But our technology, even if you go to the fire and uh, warm animal skin clothes, and fishing technologies and hunting technologies and boats, you know, all our technology has enabled us 
this was more in the first wave of expansion, but has enabled us to settle the entire planet, which is very unusual because most animals have these niches and hum humans have the ability to expand beyond our native niche. So we have this biological niche, but then we have an expanded technological niche that really at this point is encompasses the entire planet, but could encompass beyond the planet yeah. in space. Well, it, it almost feels as though we are now coming up uh, up against the buffers of what the Earth will allow us to expand into, right? So presumably space is the only place where we can go and expand um, expand technologically as well. Yeah, to some extent, I think that's true. So you could support a denser population. People think the planet is overcrowded. And I mean, to some extent, that's true. We definitely overstrip our resource consumption. We use more resources than the planet produces at this point. But uh, that's purely a matter of technology because more sunlight hits Earth in an hour than the all the energy consumed by all of humans in an entire year. Mm. And, and, you know, there, there's basically limitless water. If we had the technology to desalinate oceans without using vast amounts of energy, which it takes today, and transport that water, we could grow, we could make the Sahara into a garden, mm. a garden of Eden, right? right. So, so I think that's sort of true. Um, if you had uh, population density equivalent to Hong Kong, uh, the entire, all of humanity could fit within a, a little corner of Texas, basically. Yeah. So the idea that the planet is actually overpopulated in terms of people are bumping into each other all the time is definitely not true. Mm. What is true is that we've overstripped our resources available. So you could imagine a, uh, an Earth that could support a lot more people, but we'd have to definitely change the way we approach technology in terms of sustainability. Yeah. and that, But that is also something that's largely driven by exploration and innovation. I guess the, the idea is technological progress comes from putting ourselves at the leading edge of what's possible. And that's the only way we're going to expand what's possible by trying to do by doing what we can with what we have. And that's what I think, that's what I think the main benefit of space exploration is it forces us, us to do something altogether that's very difficult mm. and by doing difficult things and solving technological problems it, it dramatically drives our technology our technological progress and imagine thinking about like having people living on mars and how would you keep them alive and how would you recycle their water and how would you get sunlight well that creates much more of an immediate need to, to drive the technology right because you have to keep those people alive and you have to resupply them from Earth. So there's a huge incentive there to develop better spacefaring technologies to transport resources. This is exactly how it worked with the New World. Mm. Columbus's ships were Mediterranean coastal vessels unsuited for the open ocean. Yeah. <laughs> but they didn't have anything better and they were never going to have anything better unless they actually did what they can with what they have and sailed across with woefully inadequate vessels. And then having those people across the ocean created an incentive to develop better vessels. Yeah. So this is how technology always works. And this is one of the things about science fiction that I find we're always missing this middle step. Uh, well, actually, so, some don't. No, nowadays, we've actually sort of like the expanse is really good because it's sort of pretty realistic. It's in our solar system. But like Star Trek, there's this whole kind of black box 
of how you get from where we are to, to Star Trek. Um, I mean, I love Star Trek, but it's it's like doesn't explain how we get there, and how we get there is by doing what we can with what we have and expanding into our own solar system. Well, there's there's a couple of ideas there that that actually are quite important. I think with with where we're coming to the the Star Trek one is is one idea actually that that there's kind of been going flowing in my mind. But I'll I'll deal with the other one that came to my mind first, which was um, Back in the seventies, you had the Club of Rome. I'm sure you're aware of the, hmm. the, the all the yep. scientists that got together and sort of said, "We're we're kind of running out of resources hmm. here." What, what, however you look at it, it's like you said, it's the it's the resources that that are under pressure from continual expanse, and yes. and then you've got your O'Neills and people like that coming forward and saying, "Well, here's how we solve it." But isn't there? Hmm. Isn't haven't we got to one of these places where actually? Uh, we we had incredible progress, like you said. Particularly, um, we have these stops and starts of progress. It's never quite as a, a straight line as we see it from the brilliant vantage point of history. That at the moment we've kind of got to this point where really the only place to go is space. But we've got this enormous gravity well to get out of, and it's a bit like you know Everest. When people go to Everest. They it hasn't really changed much, has it? In the last sort of a hundred years of people climbing up Everest, it's become slightly easier and and slightly more people do it. But at the end of the mm. day, it's still with all our technology and all our and everything else, we're still not quite there. And so, what what do you think it is? What 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 can we do that kind of gets over that massive hump? You know, O'Neill didn't manage it and his generation didn't manage it. What What is coming up that allows us to 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 scale that, that mountain? Well, I think of expanding into the solar system as a chemical reaction that has an activation energy. And once you have the catalyst and once you start the reaction, it it's self-feeding because it's not going to be people from earth who drive the, the colonization of the solar system hmm. in the long run, in the short run, obviously it has to be, but in the long run, I think you're right. What earth, the problem we have is earth has an incredibly deep gravity. Well, and once you escape from that space travel is rather easy. <laughs> I mean, you can travel from asteroid to asteroid with a trampoline basically, <laughs> right? So the, the energy required to get between the moon and Mars is far less than to get from Earth to, to the moon, for example. Mm. I mean, uh, it's just it's just Earth's gravity well that's really the problem. So once we have a spacefaring civilization, it'll be a lot easier to get from one place to another. It's easy to send materials back to Earth if you target them correctly mm-hmm. <laughs> as they uh, re-enter into the atmosphere, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. So what gets it started? Um, I don't know exactly. I think that you know, we're making slow strides and I do think it kind of picks up as it starts. Right. Mm. And I've, I've a lot of hope for the future. I do think, um, you know, NASA, SpaceX, these are all possibilities for, for getting out there. Um, other companies as well. And, but I do think that reducing launch cost is the most important thing. And that's why I really wanted to work at SpaceX, because I think that's the most important thing we can possibly do is reduce the amount of energy we need to start that reaction, to start the chemical reaction. Um, so I think, and I think reusability is a big piece of that. So mm. I think that's hugely important. Yeah. Um, I think that's that's part of the answer, yeah. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm really intrigued by companies like Made in Space as well, who've who've kind of made that link with um, commerce in space, something that you can actually start saying, well, we can only do this in space. 
and 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 therefore sort of enticing us up to space by saying, "Look, there's some money to be made up here." Is is that another is that another catalyst there? Yeah, I mean, in the long term, when we talk about resources, space has enough resources to support our solar system mm. has enough resources to support a hundred billion people. I don't know. I mean, if you look at asteroids, but earth is a very resource poor place from the perspective of minerals and, and things like that, because most of the heavy metals sunk to the core and the, all the iron we've ever mined and all the gold and platinum basically came to earth long as, after it formed by <laughs> meteorites, <laughs> yeah. they fell on earth. It rained from the skies, right? So um, there's asteroids out there that, a single asteroid would yield more iron nickel than we've ever produced in the history of our civilization. So th- we're not short on resources. I mean, water is abundant, ubiquitous in the, in the solar system. So yeah, we're not really short on resources. We're just so- short on energy and conversion technologies and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, I mean, and I definitely think that as an optimist, the best way to create a good future for humanity is to increase our technology and get better at energy conversion and resource use and recycling and that's what, that sort of thing. Um, because it's the only way, technology is the only reliable way to consistently raise the standard of living of all people. And I'm definitely an optimist about the future too. You talked about um, you know the world and depleting our resources. I mean, obviously climate change I think is a problem, um, but I think Technology is probably the answer there too. Sustainable technologies, renewable technologies, uh, better energy production, more efficient energy production, and um, and and the world is getting better in almost every way. We're bombarded with bad news, but you know I definitely think that Steven Pinker is right that uh, the world is better in almost almost every measurable way than it's ever been. Yeah, I mean you're 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 definitely talking to the uh, converted on that front with me. I mean, I yeah, Pinker. I'm a massive Pinker fan, and I I, I agree with all, with all those sentiments. And I am I am a, an eternal optimist when it comes to uh, mankind's reach out into into creating something bigger. But it's there is definitely a feeling that when you talk um, to other people, when you talk to people who may maybe not so. Uh, enthused by sci-fi and enthused by um, science itself, that 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 message isn't really getting across. They can't they can't see the point of it. What's the what's the best way of of, of bringing everyone along with us? Because it's it's as humans we can't leave people behind. We have to we have to encourage everyone to come along for the journey. Well, I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that. Throughout history, exploration has always been carried out by a few people on the leading edge. And I don't think we need to, so to speak, bring people along. Obviously, the technological benefits should be beneficial for everyone. But in terms of getting people excited about it, I don't know that that should be the goal to kind of build a consensus because you're never going to build a consensus. You never were going to build a consensus throughout all of history. I mean, even when you know, Galileo was doing his experiments. How many people do you think thought this was a good idea or believed what he was saying or anything like that? Not many, or else they would have been doing it too. I mean, throughout history, change has always been brought about by a small group of people. And I think it's going to be that way forever. You're never going to build a consensus. Yeah, that's a very good, that is a very, very good point. Uh, the the thing that you said earlier about the difference between Star Trek and Expanse, uh, what came to mind there was, of course, there's always these black swan 
moments. And I suppose with with something like Star Trek, we're, I guess we're supposed to believe that there's been these huge black swan moments of huge mm. technological um, finds that, that suddenly kind of just leapfrog you into the next phase of development. We haven't really had a, a, a sort of big leapfrog uh, for a long time, have we? Well, um, when did we become modern? I mean, I think about the biggest technological change in the world. What, what do you think is the greatest invention of all time or the, the invention that had the most change? <laughs> um, I think probably... Uh, I, probably the steam engine. So anything, oh, anything that you win. That's that's mine too. Yeah, absolutely, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, exactly. Because because before that, you had you know you had to walk across the continent or ride yeah. a horse, and it takes like a month, and you'd probably die. <laughs> but after that, you just get on a train, and it's like a couple days, no problem. Or getting around the world. Uh, mm. Yeah, absolutely, a steam engine for sure. Uh, <laughs> damn. So this isn't very uh, controversial. No, all, well, no. I mean, and yeah. you're talking to a, you're talking from someone from Birmingham, so. I, could, I couldn't really say anything else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Interestingly, the Greeks, the ancient Greeks actually had steam engines. Oh, oh. I don't think they were very good. <laughs> well, because the, the real leap was not, I guess, Newcoming invented the steam engine, but the, or who, who one of them invented it, Watt or Newcoming, and one of them perfected it. And the first one wasn't very good. <laughs> right? and then. And then the, the second one was actually really good and worked and stuff. And I guess it was originally invented to scoop out mines or something, to dig mines or something mm. like that. Yeah. But anyway. Um, yeah. So you're right. In, in, in space travel, to some, I mean, the ability to do space travel at all mm. it was sort of a black swan moment in a sense. Because mm. I guess the New York Times is famous for having this article in the 1930s that said that humans will never travel into space. I guess they thought because it violated Newton's third law. Yeah, reaction in yeah something like that. But um, so I guess the ability to do it at all. I do think though reusability is actually one of those black swan moments. Uh, no, no, I absolutely agree. And I think the great thing about usability is the is the absolutely fantastic view of the two side boosters coming down from Falcon Heavy that first time. I mean that that did feel like we were stepping into the future. I mean, it's not warp drive. I actually <laughs> am pretty pessimistic about interstellar travel. and I do have a chapter on it, but the chapter pretty much lays out all the reasons why it's impossible. <laughs> and I, Not impossible, but just really hard, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I, I no, I actually do think we will achieve interstellar travel, assuming we don't wipe ourselves out, which I think is more than likely that we will eventually achieve interstellar travel. Um, but I think it's more of the kind of colony ship with the hibernation or something like that and it's going to take like a thousand years yeah. to get to another star <laughs> Some, something like that more, or a hundred maybe maybe a hundred years but not kind of like Star Trek jumping around from solar system to solar system until we eventually master like energy matter conversions and really maybe build black holes and I don't know what we do but yeah <laughs> but in the near in the envisionable near future yeah, I'm not ruling out the possibility that there could be some complete, you know, breakthrough out of nowhere. Hey, warp drive is possible. But if you read about it, it's just like, okay, so maybe we could get like a particle to go back in time in a lab. But we're talking about like a photon or smaller, right? Like, how do you get a ship to do that? Oh, uh, yeah. That, that, they, well, I think they, they, they recently did a calculation for the, Al, is it the Albuquerque drive? I can't remember how. Yeah, Alcubierre. Yeah, that's it. The um, 
they did some calculation. Originally, it was it would take the entire mass of the universe to be converted into energy yeah. to <laughs> i think it shrunk yeah yeah sh- i mean it shrunk yeah. down to a large star now exactly so so you could yeah you could, people always yeah you, you always read these articles like oh warp drive is possible nasa's working on it well <laughs> um <laughs> not really and even if maybe yes then we're talking about like a particle or something yeah. like that <laughs> yeah. yeah it's i mean yeah. I, I guess for me, actually, the the one that if if we're just really concerned about the um, the Earth gravity well, isn't it? Really, it's that it's just getting mm. getting off Earth, and so I I suppose really the big ones are things like orbital rings and space elevators and 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 things like that would be the next thing after, like you said, extremely cheap access into space using reuse reusability. Yeah, I don't I don't know that I'm too bullish on space elevator. I so definitely like a lunar space elevator or a Martian one. The Earth one seems very challenging that I don't think maybe we'll have one someday, mm. but I don't think it's the kind of thing that we kind of want to build before we start going into space for real. Yeah, and I'm also not really super into the space rings and deep space stations and stuff like that. I kind of don't understand why you would build a station in space rather than going to like why you would try to make a planet rather than just going to a planet. (laughs) There's plenty of like solid soils where solid surfaces where you can just go get some water, some ice or whatever, or, you know, mine some minerals or something like that. Why would you want to just build it free floating in space? I guess the gravity and you can control i mean solar panel collection i mean there are some reasons i guess but uh, it just seems like from a material perspective it's suboptimal well yeah i suppose yeah with the i i i had never i i must admit i never really saw the point myself but we we did do a, a kind of deep dive a couple of months ago into space habitats and after mm. after reading o'neill's work and 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 seeing why he came to that conclusion i, I can see it i can see the 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 yeah. the you've got this unlimited resources of asteroids and and you can start it off by firing things off the moon and things like that and and you can make your own worlds how you like them i think i mean if you land on mars you kind of are stuck with mars gravity you're kind of stuck with the absolutely poisonous marsh martian soil and the radiation and things like that whereas i, I guess you've got slightly more control of your environment in a stanford taurus or something like that yeah, I suppose that's true, but a couple of things. What's the point? <laughs> and and how did the people get there to fire them? You just said fire the materials off the moon or mm. you know, collect the asteroids. Well, don't you have to go to the moon and the asteroids first then? It's yeah, kind yeah. of like oh, seems yeah. like yeah, yeah. End, I mean right. So the- mm. well it's kind of like um, Venus, right? Like Venus, you can build a floating space station mm. in at a certain altitude in the clouds where Earth air just floats mm. and it's the right temperature and weather and stuff, but like it's basically Cloud City. Mm. But why? <laughs> Well, I, 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 well, I guess the the things like the Stanford Taurus is is a bit like the Expanse. If you've got a lot of people who are working as miners and engineers out in the asteroid belt, then that would be their mm. home, I suppose. And it's quite easy to get to. Like you said, it's a, a trampoline jump from one place to the other when you're not having to deal with planetary sized and uh, gravity wells. Yeah, I think that's right. So I definitely wouldn't rule out deep space stations or anything like that. I just think that near term, it kind of is illogical to start try uh, to start uh, with that. I absolutely agree. I think yeah. <laughs> I think near term, just the absolute. <laughs> how how would you even go about building them? It's it's, it's crazy. I, uh, yeah, yeah I, I, I'm sure we'll see. 
I'm sure we'll see bases on the moon and even bases on Mars before we see Stanford Tauruses. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> you, won't, you won't find me arguing with that. So, um, so that the fourth part of your uh, the fourth part of your book is 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 a kind of um, is a is a delve into the future. Is that correct? Yeah, actually, I might as well give. I don't think I've talked so much about what the different parts are yeah, and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. I might as well give kind of an overview. So the book is a trajectory from the beginning of humanity into the far future. So it's kind of a history of humanity, but taken from the perspective of exploration. So it talks about all the great explorations in history that you're probably familiar with, the age of exploration, but that's really a small part of the book. And I also tried to focus on other parts of the world as much as possible, Middle East, China, India, North America as well. I have an an interesting chapter that talks about um, whether the Incas were actually seafaring. And I think there's pretty good evidence that they could have been, Mm. meaning they built pretty seaworthy rafts and did transport cargo along the coast. And maybe they sailed to the Galapagos or something like that. There's a legend that they did and their technology is consistent with that. Um, but it's kind of like the Thor Heyerdahl idea where the Incas traveled across the Pacific. They definitely didn't, or <laughs> there's no evidence that they did. But um, I think there's actually reasonable evidence that the Polynesians may have visited the Americas. And it just seems like the most likely explanation, considering they sailed for three or four times that distance across the Pacific, got within 1,500 miles, and had traveled more than 1,500 miles on multiple journeys. And the, we're talking about giant continents running from north to south. Mm. They found every island <laughs> yeah. in the Pacific. How could they not find the giant continents? Plus, there's a lot of connective evidence as well, like sweet potato, for example. The Polynesians had sweet potatoes before yeah. uh, Europeans brought them, and they don't really travel across ocean. Coconuts reached the Pacific coast of the Americas before Europeans brought them, uh, and they traveled along with the Polynesians. I mean, there's there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that suggests that the Polynesians probably reached the Americas. Um, yeah, and so, so the first part is in the beginning, and it goes up to the fall of Rome. And actually, one of my favorite chapters is really about the Greeks and the Romans, because when we talk about the age of exploration and Europeans visiting India and going to China and things like that, really... That's just a repetition and a rediscovery of what the Romans actually did. People don't know about it so much, but the Romans, after Antony and Cleopatra, the Romans occupied Egypt, and they sailed to India every year to buy spices, mm. just just like later Europeans from from the Red Sea down to Egypt and uh, down to India, and a number of Romans made it to China as well, and some Chinese made it to Rome. Um, so there was a lot of contact across the old world. The Greeks after Alexander built the Silk Road. Mm. And the Greeks had kingdoms in Afghanistan and India for a long time. The world was far better connected back in the golden age of Greece, which is the time of the Ptolemies, uh, where they developed steam engines, (laughs) as we said. And they also developed railways. There was a Corinth railway uh, that was pulled by pack animals, and they just never put the two together, basically. (laughs) But they they had all these really fascinating technologies like submarines and the Antithera Antithera mechanism, which is like this analog computer. It's it's literally my favorite thing on Earth. That that thing is just incredible. Absolutely amazing. Oh, man. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. If you read about like Archimedes, all the inventions that he had, uh, that guy was like a genius. <laughs> There's stories of him building these catapult devices that would pick out the Roman ships. He, he was fighting the yeah. Romans. He was a Syracusan uh, that would like pick out the Roman ships out of the water and set them on fire with yeah. <laughs> like redirecting the sunlight and all these booby traps. And he was like the smartest guy in history. Yeah. Um, I think Arch- Archimedes. Yeah. So um, it's fascinating how much the Greeks and Romans knew. And then they forgot. There was this Greek travel guide of the Indian Ocean that talked about all the cities in West, A- or sorry, in East Africa, all the way down to Madagascar. <laughs> and then the Portuguese arrived and they're like, we never heard of these places. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like a thousand years later, and they knew nothing about this. Wow. And so it's, it's super fascinating that uh, the age of exploration really kind of happened with the Greeks and Romans, and then it was just repeated by uh, Europeans. And the, another thing is like China's age of exploration. I think. Probably a lot of people these days are actually familiar with Zheng He and the Chinese explorations of the Indian Ocean. And this was a real innovation. And it was the first time a nation set up with big, giant ships. And the ships and the fleets were totally dwarfed anything in Europe. And if you look at China and Europe and you compare China and Europe in the year 1400, China was far more powerful, far more technologically advanced. And really, it should have been the one that went out to explore the world. It should have been the one that had pilgrims mm. in California, right? In North America. And it should have been the one that settled North America. Well, why wasn't it? Um, so I talk about um, what the difference between China and Europe was and why Europe went down one path of exploring and, and colonizing the world, basically conquering the world to some degree. And, and China went into a path of isolation where it became victim of these predatory treaties by Europeans. So, yeah, I mean, and exploration plays a huge part of that. And it's part of the dynamicism of society. Uh, hugely important. Yeah, yeah. If I the, the the I don't know whether this I don't think this is an urban myth, but uh, China was so good at making China, as in porcelain, hmm. that, yeah. that that's what they use for boiling water and everything else. Whereas the Europeans developed glass, and of course, glass mm, yeah, then true. glass yeah. went on to become lenses, and it meant that you, as a older person, you could work for a lot longer writing and reading. And so they, they think that it's just the fact that the Chinese were so good at making China that they actually hobbled themselves because they never ended up making glass. And I, <laughs> I just, it, yeah, I, I've heard that too. I don't know if that's the huge, the biggest one. I think there's a lot of factors like that, that, that are a lot of little factors related to nemesism. But I think the main thing is that China was one monolithic empire mm. and Europe was a bunch of divided states and this divided this division created competition if you think about all the explorations columbus he took his plan to three or four kings and before and he was shot down by everyone henry the seventh of england turned him down and the king of france turned him down and the king of portugal turned him down and eventually he found backing by spain genoa turned him down so and same thing with Magellan, exact hmm. same thing. And and if he'd been a Chinese sailor, he he would have gone to the emperor, and the emperor says no. And then okay, well that's it. I'll just go do something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there was definitely a yeah that period in history where you've got the Dutch v the v the British v the French v the yeah everyone else. Oh yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah a, for sure. It, it's it's a fantastic era, and I suppose you you, you the, the exact same thing happens in the Cold War, doesn't it? You've got the the greatest leaps in space exploration because of the because of the uh, America versus the Soviet Union. Yeah, it's all about incentives and competition. That's huge. And even in later phases of the age of exploration, where you have the scientific explorations of Cook, for example, mm. Cook was basically it, the the scientific exploratory voyages of the 17th and 18th century. Um, 
were really just like the Cold War space age, mm. uh, space race. And Cook went out uh, to explore the South Pacific in Tahiti uh, to take scientific observations of the transit of Venus. But it was really kind of a soft power reason. And, and this is why the, the French set out, sent out, um, you know, like 50 explorations to, to 50 expeditions to the South Pacific. And it's just kind of this Cold War arms race of, of technological development and national pride between France and the Dutch as well, and, and Britain, that uh, kind of motivate a lot of these explorations. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you, do do you think we need that, or do you think the world is is kind of settling on a different mode of operation for for this? Well, for, for us to become a spacefaring species. Yeah, I think we probably do need competition. I think that's huge. It's always been a huge factor in any kind of change and progress because if you don't have the incentive, then you're not going to you're not going to change. I mean, progress has always been as a result of trying to change the status quo, not to maintain it. And that's why China, for example, turned inwards because the wealthy elites in power didn't want change. <laughs> yeah. Well, that 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 of course in some ways echoes <laughs> through some of our modern societies in 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 the western world right now. Yeah, I think that's true. Um but I think there's still a lot of dynamicism and like even in the space race you have a lot of countries that are able to send people to orbit. And so it's great when you have like India saying they're going to send people to space. China's obviously making leaps and bounds in space. Japan has a robust space program. All these countries do. So uh, there's definitely a potential for kind of a multipolar, not a Cold War space race, but sort of a multipolar achievement thing. Like China sent that rover that landed on the uh, dark side of the moon. Yep. Not dark side, you know, far side of the moon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, it, it's quite funny. The India China. Um, rivalry is actually very very strong indeed that's uh, and of course that that represents pretty much two-thirds of the world's population right there <laughs> a lot yeah there's that there's that uh, kind of famous uh, circle you can draw around china and india that includes half the world's population it includes southeast asia and stuff too but yeah exactly yep mm-hmm. do the commercial providers get into competition with the with with nations, are, are are we looking at a kind of shift where it's it where the where nations are going to have less of a less of a say in it, and individuals and corporations and collectives are going to have more of a say in it? Are we seeing almost like a democratization of uh, space travel? That's an interesting question. Um, I think the incentive structure might be different, so possibly yes. It, it's kind of interesting. Some science fiction uses that uh, theme, like aliens, I think. It's all about the corporation wants yeah. to go out and get the alien eggs, right? Uh, aliens is actually kind of a cool, hard sci-fi in a sense because it's um, pretty realistic, mm. actually. They have long-duration travel and, and yeah. So I think so. I think maybe that's possible. Yeah. I don't know for sure. I mean, obviously, there's an interplay between governments and private, but um, I think it's possible. So where would you, uh, where, I don't want to pin you down here, but where would you put um, timelines? Do do you like making timelines? (laughs) I know it's always tricky. In fact, I explicitly don't. (laughs) So um, I just kind of am looking at the general trend of history. And I think that it's, it's inevitable that we will 
you know, go to the stars, so to speak, and, and settle our solar system. Unless we wipe ourselves out, but I think that's fairly unlikely. Um, but I definitely do not want to comment on timelines at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you've done, you've done, you've, you've done, <laughs> you've done well there. Because I, I, I think, I think that's it, isn't it? I think history is full of those moments where, like you said, the the, the what we call the Dark Ages, in between. Uh, the Greeks and the Romans and the Europeans' renaissance of rediscovering it all. Yeah, yeah. Well, think about it. So if Columbus, let's say, hadn't sailed in 1492, mm. would someone have done the same thing in another five years or not? Possibly not. Possibly not. It's, it's hard to say. There, there's kind of arguments for both sides, I think. Because if you look at the Atlantic, there's actually claims that certain other Europeans reached the reached North America earlier. And Columbus actually had islands mm. marked on his maps of the North Atlantic. P Europeans thought there was land out there. What they didn't think was that those islands were very interesting or were part of Asia. Mm. Columbus thought those islands are part of Asia. That's the difference with Columbus. But the, the Portuguese it, arguably, there's 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 um, a Coto Real. Mm. So Coto Real supposedly had already sailed to like Newfoundland or something like that, um, but he didn't kind of recognize the significance. He just thought, oh, it's another island out there, right? So it's it's unclear whether Columbus was actually the first European of that timeline. Even I mean, obviously the Vikings had been there mm. earlier, but of that timeline, even to to actually visit North America, he was the first person to insist that it was part of Asia and sort of get people excited about doing it. Uh, the Basque fishermen, if not before Columbus, then within a few years of Columbus, were sailing to Newfoundland to go to the Grand Banks and catch fish. So um, his role was not so much just sailing to North America, but kind of get getting people excited and telling the world and, and kind of creating this drive for other people to do it. And because after him, you know, within 10 years, Vespucci was mapping the shoreline and claiming it's this new continent and all this stuff. So he created a whole revolution of Europeans going out into the Atlantic, but it, he probably wasn't the first. So it's, it's not necessarily, so it's hard to say whether it was that moment and Europe was on the cusp of doing it anyway, or whether it was something unique about him being horribly bad at geography because <laughs> what 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 changed the world what allowed him to change the world was that he was just awful at geography and didn't believe any of the scientists who told, were telling him that no no asia is way too far he's just like <laughs> way further away than you think <laughs> yeah no i have read that several times it's just yeah he was a bit bit rubbish <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah exactly that, he was just really wrong that's that's what actually but it turned out to be a bonus i mean that's but that's true in science too people learn through mistakes often and they discover things that they aren't looking for penicillin was discovered in that way right just because they were bad at cleaning petri dishes <laughs> so um and same thing with Magellan. he he just thought oh well i'll just find a passage i'm pretty sure it's out there somewhere you know we'll just like go out and sail and try to find it i don't know if it's there who knows but well probably it is but the pacific oh yeah that's got to be like two days to sail across that. <laughs> so, yeah. so he was horribly bad at geography too, which uh, also changed the world. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very interesting time. I always think of the, 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 the Dutch and their sort of great big sailing ships of the time being very, very reminiscent of, 
of the amount of money that you would need to spend to do space exploration. They were spending like a, a huge amount of money on and resources on hoping that that mm. those ships would sail out and bring more back. So it, it, there's definitely parallels there, isn't there? Yeah, and it really paid off. I mean, I have, I, I think you know the Dutch golden age is one of the most interesting times in history. And exploration drove so many innovations, not only in science, but economics. Mm. For example, the first publicly traded joint stock corporation, East India Company, Dutch East India Company, and insurance was created to support exploratory voyages like that. And the banking industry was really created to support exploratory, actually more uh, merchant voyages by uh the Italian Northern Republics in Florence and Genoa, and they were trading with Egypt. They were bringing spices back in the last line of the, the spice trade because the spice trade existed before Portugal went around Africa. It was just coming through Egypt and it was Venice that was doing it. Um, so all these innovations in banking and economics were really driven by this exploration. And yeah, the, the Dutch were a quarter percent of the world's population and controlled more than half the world's shipping at in the mid 1600s from a country that's half the size of Maine. Yeah. Yeah, they were good. They were very, they were very good at what they did. Actually, I and mean, what you just said then was 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 an interesting point, wasn't it? You the innovation isn't just about the technology, but it's all it's about some of the systems that you put in place like insurance and things like that. I mean, we are heading into an era now, aren't we, where some of those things like uh, the Outer Space Treaty and insurance and all and ways of and all the sort of legal structures around outer space need innovating as well, don't they? So people like to talk about those things a lot, and it's sort of rel- people talk about like what's the gov- government going to be like on Mars, and I think it's sort of important, but until you actually <laughs> get there, it's a little bit sort of dreaming. It's like putting the cart before the horse a little bit, like historically. Problems are solved when they need to be solved, yep. not just because we think, oh, there's a problem out there that we're going to run into in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, just look at climate change. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> that's why it's so difficult to deal with that is because, well, in 20, 30 years, the ecosystem is going to collapse of the world. Oh, well, what's happening tomorrow? Mm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, a, well, it's both a long-term problem. I mean, I think that it is having impacts today and it's, it's a problem, but it's, people aren't good at planning for the future, hmm. number one. And also it's a problem that uh, is a tragedy of the commons. So everyone contributes just a small little tiny amount and you, it's hard to notice your own contribution. And it feels like you can't really do much, therefore, because what it re- requires is collaborative effort. That's actually one of the things about space exploration you were asking about earlier and sort of having everyone on board. That's one of the things that makes space exploration more possible is that it doesn't require everyone to be on board because you just need a small group of people who have the resources, time, money, interest in doing it, right? You don't need everyone to agree. I mean, ultimately... Space is going to be driven by a, a financial need, and and I, I couldn't agree more with that sentiment of, of stuff just gets sorted out when you really really need to sort it out, yeah, and and, and, <laughs> and, and, and which which inevitably will lead to some form of conflict. There will be times where it, the only time we'll sort out things like ownership of an asteroid is when it actually push comes to shove. Surely, oh yeah, I mean people are just going to go and grab an asteroid 
and then find out what happens, basically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that, I mean it'll be re- interesting times, interesting times for that to happen. Yeah. So, yeah, so you, you've written some children's books. So t- t- tell us a little bit about, uh, about those. Yeah, I have four children's books. Three are in a series. They're for rather young children. Uh, they're sort of alphabetical and rhyming, but they're not sort of just like A is for Apple. Uh, they're kind of for maybe three, four, five, six year olds. Mm. Epic Space Adventure is, and, and they're sort of high, hard sci-fi, I guess you might say. For kids. <laughs> um, Epic Space Adventure is a tour of the solar system. And then Mars Rover Rescue, they go to rescue a rover on Mars. And they have a team of animals. Um, and then Europa Excursion, they bring the team to go and rescue a submarine under the ice. So they mm. drill down through the ice of Europa. Kind of cool. And then there's um, Rocket Science, which is for older kids, maybe like 8, 9, 10, and teaches them how spacecraft and rockets work and planetary exploration as well. That one is being re-released by Candlewick next year, so it's actually not available right now. But, um, yeah, look for it next year. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll buy it for Jamie. <laughs> it's about his level. The, so, uh, is, is, is there any, <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> a is, is there any um, at your current book? I mean, presumably this was a, a, a completely different writing style and a, a whole new uh, approach to be able to write a book like this. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Um, it's available now, so go and order it. Yeah, I, I've been recording the audiobook, which is really kind of challenging but super fun. So if you're interested in audiobooks as well, that that is available and I get to read it. So fun. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I, I will listen to it on audiobook. I have to say that's that's how I consume most of my most of my books these days, since the failing eyesight, I just can't be bothered to find my glasses anymore. Mm. <laughs> so I just yeah, yeah. I, I look at screens all day long. So uh, yeah, listen, listening to a book is is the way to go, and it's always great when it's the author that's um, that's reading it. So that uh, yeah, that's great. Um, oh, yeah, I mostly do audiobooks as well. Yeah, your um, space playlist song. So the space playlist song, um, Kurt Schilling, Major Tom. So not David Bowie, <laughs> Space Oddity, but it's a song about that song. In, awesome. In the original German, please. In the original German. Yeah. Can, can I can I get that on Spotify? Will I find <laughs> Raumschiff? Oh, probably. I don't know. Yeah. I hope so. Okay, I'll, I'll I'll look out for that. That's a, that's a, that's going to be league lost good list. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much for uh, for having a little chat about space. That was great. Yeah, thanks, Matt. It was really fun. So there you go, Jamie. There is a mission manager at SpaceX talking about humankind's journey to the stars what absolutely lovely chap and definitely go and check that book out and his podcast what's his podcast called matt i think his podcast is called spellbound there we go check out spellbound it's eighth. and if you are in the mood for checking things out where should people go if they liked the podcast jamie well it's www.interplanetary.org Dot UK. What will people find there, Jamie? Well, there's links to our merch store. There's links to um, our Instagram. There's a, a link which will show you how you become one of the mighty Patreons. Supporting the show, 
uh, with a little donation to help us do this every week for you space freaks. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. Absolutely. The Spodcats that are on Discord and the Spodcats that are on Patreon, they paid for our little live show last week, didn't they, Jamie? That, Absolutely Which I thoroughly did. enjoyed. Word up to Space Store and Stephen Ringler for, for organising that. Big up to Space Store. We loved it. We hope you enjoyed the live show. Next time we do one, you'll have to come down. I think we should do more, shouldn't we, Matt? We really uh, enjoyed it. I, I think 2020 will open a launch window for our first tour of Britain. We may we even... To- we may even have to do a tour of the States as well because... Well, we, I think this has to happen, doesn't it? I mean, people, literally tens of people are asking us. Exactly. Well, not only that, te- when we when we said that we would need somewhere to sleep, lo- lots of people actually wrote in and, and, and offered their... Yeah. Offered their houses offered their in America. Up. So, so I, 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 I really want to take them up on it because obviously... Oh, that would please be, do, how, yeah. How, how fun would that be, stopping around a Spodcat's house? Well, I mean, you know... The things that I would have to do to to top and tail with you, Matt, on a sofa. But exactly. That aside, I would absolutely love it. I think we should make it happen. Absolutely. It'd be like it'd be like breaking bad space version. So here's the thing. If there's something spacey in your town, whether that's in the UK or Europe or the greater world, let us know and maybe we'll put it on our map for 2020 live show. I can't wait. Jamie. Yes. What are you doing this weekend? Um, I What am I doing? So I'm going to a friend's for lunch tomorrow. And then I've got to get back because I've got to pack. I'm moving house next week, Matt. Only a few towns away. But I'm moving, so I've got to get packing. What mm. about you? What are you up to? I'm cr- congratulations on moving house, Jamie. That's, Thank uh, you, sir. That's, Thank that's you. That's awesome news. Thank you very uh, much. What am I doing this weekend? I'm going to see my kids playing bands, no doubt. Oh, um, sick! I'm going to edit this. Are podcast. you going to be in the? Are you going to be in the embarrassing dad at the front with a sign? Big time. I'm going to be I'm, saying you're rubbish. I was in broadsword or something like that. Yeah, yeah and then I'm going to do do dad dancing. <laughs> they will love that. Please do it. And then maybe grab the mic and do We Will Rock You or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that would be incredible. Yes. Come on, everyone. Clap your hands. That's my son over there. Jamie. Oh, I'd love that. I, do you yes. know something I haven't done for ages? Go on. The Interplanetary Podcast. Putting the ace back into back space. into space. That's beautiful. Or as Brian Blessed would do it. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. There we go. How about that? Right, Jamie, I'm going to go now because this this has gone on far too long. Well, I'd like to say, Matt, it's been a pleasure talking with you this week and uh, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye, Spodcast!